give you a little uh, preface here. If you see me stagger around while I'm up here, I'm not drunk. Uh, it's not even lunchtime yet. Um, it's what Peter said, right, in this sermon? Uh, I've had vertigo for the last few days, so if I move my head too fast, everything swims. So uh, if, if, if I suddenly hold on and you're wondering, what's wrong with him? That's all. Well, <laughs> there are a lot of other things wrong with me, but that's the one that's most obvious at the moment. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. We are finishing up Acts chapter 2. With this second in the series, uh, second in our launch series, I, I, I was amazed these last few weeks. Uh, I've known for a while I was going to preach like this, but I didn't know what the passages would be uh, until uh, until fairly recently. And then I looked at last week's passage and thought, well, hey, that goes great with uh, loving with truth, a call to repentance. And then I wasn't sure where I was going to go after that, what I was going to use with loving with compassion, and then, you know, just read it and thought, God, you just worked this out perfectly, that uh, this, is where, uh, this is where he brought us at this time. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If we could get all the lights turned on, I'd appreciate it. Uh, it'd help me see. Uh, Acts, 4, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Remember our launch uh, acronym, or no, acrostic. Which is it? Or is it both? Anyway, launch, L-A-U-N-C-H, loving among the uttermost, our neighborhoods, our city, and our home. Launch. And uh, as I said last week, we're focusing on loving for two weeks. Last week, we talked about loving with truth. This week, we are talking about loving with compassion. Now, uh, let me also say this morning that uh, around the country, uh, based on what I saw on Facebook last evening, there are a lot of pastors that changed their sermons for this morning based on what's going on this weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, the alt-right white supremacist rally that's going on up there, the violence that has occurred, the now I believe I saw three or four deaths uh, from it, that there was a need by many pastors, they felt, to change their, their message. And I, I hold them in high esteem for doing that. A couple of reasons why I didn't feel the need to do that one morning, uh, feel the need to do that this morning. One, preached on it just a few weeks ago. I am even prouder today that I was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention that voted uh, the resolution against the white supremacy. Uh, I, I'm glad I was there. Clearly that was needed. Uh, that was exactly what we, we didn't realize it. I'm coming and going, aren't I? Yeah, why, why is it doing that, Jeff? It's coming and going. All right, maybe we got it fixed. Uh, that's, that's one reason I didn't feel the need to, to change it because we talked about it a few weeks ago. Doesn't mean we don't need to talk about it some more. Just that this morning I didn't think it was necessary to go back and rehash that. The second reason is think of this morning's passage loving with compassion. That covers it. If we are truly loving with compassion, we don't have hate for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't hate, have hate for anyone, regardless of skin color, regardless of religion even regardless of their intent for us. 
That's what Scripture teaches. So we're going to cover some of that this morning, work it in, uh, work cultural current events into the passage, but it's right where we need to be. Fifteen times the New Testament uh, instructs us to love each other, at least 15 times, in some variation. Using that phrase, love one another, or a, a phrase very close to that. Numerous other times in the New Testament, we are told to love each other, shown how to love each other, uh, shown what that would look like. Uh, in the, for example, Ephesians 4.15 says that we, when we are correcting each other, we are speaking the truth in love. So even when we, uh, like last week, when we are loving each other with truth, truth never comes at the expense of love. We see from the Good Samaritan to the churches in Revelation, we see love with compassion. Throughout the New Testament, there is love with compassion. These were natural outflows, compassion and love, of the growing church. And we see that in Acts 2, 42 through 47. We then, as a church, as believers, must follow their example. The Bible is a number of things. They're written for a number of reasons. Some of those reasons are direct teaching. Uh, the, the, the grandest reason is to show Christ to us. But there's also, there are also passages that are examples, whether they are moral examples. That's a very uh, apt teaching of many of the passages, uh, particularly narrative passages of, of the Old and New Testament. Or whether it's uh, an example on not necessarily morals, but how to function as a church. Times when there's no direct command, as in this passage, but there's a clear example of this is how it was done, this is how you should do it. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We see loving with compassion here in this passage in the broader context, excuse me, of the formation of the early church. And that's what we're going to see today. Read with me Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves, actually back up to verse 41. Let's get into it so we see where we are, we remember from last week. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Remember that. We just went from 120 in church to 3,000 in church uh, from one day to the next. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good growth plan they had there. And then we begin 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we have here the, the foundational beginnings of the church. We find out that they added 3,000, and then Luke gives this summary statement of, of what happened after that, how, how things were going, what, what they did in general. Uh, not specifics, but a general account of what was happening. 
But we see a, a number of things here when we look at this passage, particularly in mind, uh, keeping in mind this idea of loving with compassion. First thing we see is that in order to love with compassion, we see that there was preparation. We see certain things that they did as a church, as a body of believers, as a community is the word I'm going to use pretty often this morning, that prepared them, that got them ready to do what God was going to be calling them to do later on. This passage sets up the rest of Acts. If you wonder why certain why Acts, why the early church did certain things, why certain occurrences happened to the early church, it was because of this preparatory passage. This preparation that we see, first of all, in verse 42, began with devotion. It says they were devoting. Persistence, that devotion was persistence or persevering, but you see that they were doing it. So we have persistence or persevering in unity. They came together as a church and said, we are going to devote ourselves to these things. And I don't even think that was a conscious decision on their part. I don't think it was ever a discussion. Wow, should we do this? They were amazed by their salvation. They were in awe of the Savior that they served. Therefore, it only made sense to them to do these things. They came together for uh, these, what we're going to see are four different opportunities. But what we see is that they didn't only attend when it was convenient. They didn't stir up division over insignificant matters because, well, so-and-so's house was too hot or so-and-so's house was too cold or when we did Bible study at Lucius's house, Lucius talked too long or anything like that. Their focus was on the Lord. Their focus was on what God was doing in their lives. They didn't have time as a church body to worry about those other things. They didn't have an opportunity to think, wow, should I even go to this? It was, why wouldn't I go to this? Jesus has saved me. He saved these 3,000-ish people around me. Why would I not want to be with those people and see what else he has for us? They were amazed. They were devoting themselves. And what four things did Peter say, or Luke rather, say they were devoting themselves to in this passage? First of all, they were devoting themselves to apostolic teaching. Now, I'm no apostle. Uh, I told you a few nights ago in our Galatian study, I believe that the office of apostle was over when the last apostle died. John, probably, was the last one to go. Uh, when he died, the office of apostle died with him. There was a, a, a particular office of people who had spent time with Jesus and knew him personally. But we still have the apostolic teaching today. Anytime anyone opens up scripture and teaches it, we have apostolic teaching in two different ways. One, the apostles used the Old Testament in their teaching. So if we use the Old Testament in our teaching, it's apostolic teaching because we're doing what the apostles did. Secondly, if we teach from the New Testament, we are teaching apostolic teaching because either the apostles or a direct assistant uh, or uh, relation of the apostles wrote the New Testament. Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was around the whole time. He was around Jesus when it was happening. He clearly got most of what he did, what he wrote, from Peter. So we have apostolic teaching every time we open God's word. So uh, 
as I said earlier, we have a moral example, we have narrative, we have all these different types of literature, but the apostolic teaching can be ethical, it can be practical, or it can be doctrinal. Oftentimes we come to church on Sunday morning and we want something, three somethings or four somethings or seven somethings or a checklist of some kind that we can take out when we go. And that's very possible. Uh, a few weeks ago as we looked through that, I, I gave you a number of things, uh, a list like that. Um, that's not always what Scripture does. Sometimes it is very practical. I can take this home right now, apply it to my life, and do it. Sometimes it's just ethical. Hey, this is what we need to be. This is how you need to act. It's not a checklist. It's a, it's a, uh, a gut check. Where am I as a Christian? Sometimes it's doctrinal. You need to understand what Scripture says about this issue. Will that lead to practical application? Sure. Will that lead to ethical change? Absolutely. But you need to have that doctrinal foundation. Doctrine's not boring. Preachers are boring. Doctrine's exciting. So it just depends on how we do it. But apostolic teaching for us in our uh, circumstances today would be Sundays and Wednesdays and e-groups. And any other time we present an opportunity for you to come together and not just as an organized event here in our church or even in homes, but your own life, your own opportunities to, to bring people together and say, hey, let's study God's word. Those are times when we as a church settle into apostolic teaching. And we see that the early church devoted, persistent, persevering in, in unity to the teaching of God's word. We need to do the same. Second thing we see they were devoting themselves to was fellowship. Definition of fellowship here would be shared activity. That can fall under a lot of things. As a matter of fact, it doesn't talk about what that meant for them. It just We just know that it meant shared activity. But what we see with this shared activity is a connection to, between, and for each member of the community. A connection to. When we share activity, we get to know each other better. A connection between. There's a reciprocal relationship. We reciprocate. We are sharing activities and we are leaning on each other. We're growing in our uh, relationship with each other and then a connection for each other. We see this develop a little bit more in the passage, but we are looking out for each other. We are doing things for each other. We minister to each other. So we see a connection to, between, and for each other. It carries some of this idea of, of sharing, of holding everything in common that we see in verse 44 that we're going to get to in just a few minutes. But let's go back to that word they devoted themselves to. They worked at it. Y'all, fellowship is work. Relationship is work. Loving each other is work. And I'm going to hammer this here in just a little bit, uh, hammer this more in just a few minutes. But let's get that out of the way now. It doesn't just happen. We don't just come together as a church automatically. We may have the desire to because of our faith. We may have the, the will to do it. Uh, or the want to do it, to quote Les Miles, uh, the want to do it because of our relationship with Christ, but we have to have the will to do it. We have to decide, this is important to me, therefore I'm going to do it. We have to make that decision. The third thing 
they were devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. This would be table fellowship. This would be a little deeper than just shared activity. We can play uh, sand volleyball together on a Sunday night at Frash Park, and that's a fellowship, that's shared activity. But when we sit down at a meal together, that is a different level of intimacy. Now, this could have included, and probably did, the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's clear that the early church took the Lord's Supper at least every week. It's possible every time a group of church people sat down together to share a meal, they had a portion of that where they remembered the Lord's sacrifice. And we, we don't do that. As a matter of fact, we talk about having the, the uh, Lord's Supper quarterly. Some churches have it once or twice a year. Occasionally you'll find a church that does it uh, once a month, but there are very few Baptist churches that do it weekly. I, I wonder if we're not missing something. When we relegate the Lord's Supper to four times uh, a, a year and we, we say well if we only if we do it too much it'll lose its meaning we sing every week has it lost its meaning we study God's word every week has it lost its meaning so if we take the Lord's Supper every week will it lose its meaning I, I, don't, I don't know I don't think so something to think about but what it certainly implies it might imply the Lord's Supper but what it certainly implies is intimacy beyond mere acquaintance. This isn't just getting to spike a volleyball on somebody's head that you met a few minutes ago. That's fun. That's an acquaintance, but this is intimacy. Anytime you sit down with meal uh, with someone at a meal, there's an intimacy there that doesn't happen often in other places. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. It's what it means often when it uses this fra- phrase, breaking of bread. The fourth thing we see that community do is pray. This is uh, prayers that are community actions. This is the community at work. There are a lot of things we do as a church. A lot of things we call work in the church. Prayer is not uh, ancillary to what we do. Prayer is not uh, a tangent to the work. Prayer is the work. If we don't pray, the work is useless. If we don't pray, the work is wasted. Luke, throughout the book of Acts, has an incredibly strong emphasis on the prayer of the church. It's pretty clear that very little happened in the church without prayer. As a matter of fact, it's pretty clear in the church that they didn't expect anything to happen if they didn't pray. And we tend to uh, get that in reverse. If something doesn't happen, we pray. We need to get back to what the early church did and pray as a church that God would move, that God would send His Holy Spirit, that God would move among our schools, that God would use our ministers and our ministries, that God would strengthen our uh, church members, our believers, that God would move people from lost to saved within our community. We need to pray This community, this church, they uh, sought direction and they showed dependence on God by their prayers. They rarely moved without praying first. And if they weren't sure God was in it, they wouldn't pray. I mean, they wouldn't go. Because remember, they were using Old Testament scriptures as their teaching. 
the apostolic teaching came from the Old Testament at this time. They would look back at somebody like Moses when God told him, I will go with you when you go uh, through this land. And Moses said, if you don't go, we're not going either. So they learned, talk to God about it, see where he's going. If he's not going, don't go there. But if he is going, you better go too. That's what we see from the people uh, of the early church, these four aspects of their devotion to each other, uh, to unity, to uh, community. And then we see in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. We see that the God used this community to make an impression on their community. See, the whole power of the Holy Spirit was obvious. When the Holy Spirit is moving in a church, people know it. People hear about it. People are aware of it. When a church body, when the people of the church are filled with the Holy Spirit, the people outside the church know something is going on. They can't avoid it. It's not possible to avoid it because of the the change that the people of God are affecting in the community. We see that happening here. It says that the people of the community, the people around them, everyone was filled with awe. Maybe not the best word. Fear is that word that's used. Awe is a good way of seeing that word fear, but the Greek word is fear. This would be careful, respectful, nervous notice. Oh my heavens, what, what's going on down there? How, how is this going to mess up my life that God's moving in that church? Something's happening, and I'm a little worried about it. Well, if the devil's got them, they need to be worried about it. When the Holy Spirit of God moves through a church, the devil should be worried about it. And we see... I thought that was a good place for an amen, but I don't know. Maybe that was just me. When, the, when, when God is moving, things change. And the, the, the status quo of the lost world of sinfulness and evil doesn't want to see that change. But when God moves, things happen. People notice. What we see here is that there was evidence of God's support for the new community. This wasn't... Let's, let's not get it out of, out of order, though. This wasn't God saying, okay, y'all are doing good. I'll give you my stamp of approval. No, it was they were being obedient, and because they were obedient, God was blessing. God was doing things that made the rest of the neighborhood, the rest of the community, take notice. The, action, uh, the actions and the activities of the church community amazed the unbelievers. Well, what amazed them? Well, signs and wonders, certainly. We're going to see about that when we move into chapter 3 of Acts. See one of the first big signs and wonders of the church. But it was more than that. It's, it's what we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. It was the people around them seeing what God was doing in the individual lives of the people of the church and being amazed at what it was. I mean, think about it in, in Sulphur today. If this group of 225 people suddenly added 3,000 to it after one message, what, what kind of buzz would there be in sulfur? A pretty impressive one. It would be a whoo buzz. You're exactly right. 
people would be amazed. What's going on at First Baptist Church? Nothing's going on other than God's moving. The same God that had the power then has this power now. And people would see that. They would know something's happening at that church. So people were amazed. They were looking at this going, have mercy. What is going on? So God used this community to make an impression. And then we see, and here is the, the, the linchpin for our message this morning. Verses 44 through 45. The community loved with compassion within the church. Now, y'all, y'all might have thought I was going to talk about loving with compassion outside the church. Mm, yeah, there, absolutely, we need to do that, and I'm going to touch on it. But this passage talks about loving with compassion within the church. A lot of times, we as a church, church universal, not just church local, but certainly church local, we as a church will mask our lack of love for each other within the church by trying to show love for people outside the church. We'll try to show them, hey, we're a loving, great church. See what we're doing outside the community? And people peek inside the door and go, well, y'all don't love each other in there. So how can I believe what you're doing out here? We've got to focus on ourselves. The community in verse 44, it says, was, now all the believers were together. Unity, unity of purpose, unity of heart. They were together. Did they all like each other? Most of them probably didn't even hardly know each other. They just added 3,000 just a few days before. They had to grow in that relationship. We are talking about a a disparate group of people. We're talking about high class and low class. We're talking about slaves and slave owners. We're talking about people from all walks of life coming together into one church, believing in one Savior, following the one true God. Yet there was unity. They were all together, all 3,120 of them, give or take. They were coming together. But what were they coming together to do? They were coming together and holding all things in common. Taking verse 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the the proceeds to all as any had need. They were coming together to show care as needed to the point of personal sacrifice. The example we have here is material needs. There's, there's a, probably a very good reason why this is in the midst of a festival time. Uh, th- there are people from traveling from all over the, the country ha- that have come to Jerusalem for P- the, the Pentecost, for the festival. And there were people that once they became a part of this church, once they believed, their lives were radically changed. So I can envision some of them saying, you know what? I can't just go home. I, I can't just stop. I can't just walk away from whatever this is. I've got to learn more about this. I, I know what's happened in my heart, but, but really what's going on? What, what do I need to do here? What do I need to learn? So they were sticking around. There were very real needs, physical, material needs at the time. And the church stepped up and said, whatever we have to do, we will do. But see, this was not a required thing. This wasn't the pastor saying, look, y'all should do this. 
This was the people voluntarily coming together because there was an awareness of need. Why was there an awareness, awareness of need? Because there was unity. They were coming together for apostolic teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And they knew each other. They knew what the needs were. So the church said, we can meet those needs. This is not a problem. We serve a God beyond any problem. Therefore, we can handle this. We can do it. They loved with compassion. Now, this was not a one-time thing. And this was not an instance where everybody sold everything they had and they put all the money in the pot and everybody got their allowance from that every week. That's not what happened. What happened here was as needed, somebody said, you know what, I can take care of that need because I've got this over here I can sell and we can handle that one. Great, that need's done. Oh, there's a need over here. Now somebody else said, all right, no problem. I can handle that one here. I've got the money right here. No big deal. Somebody else saw a third need. I can, I can make this work. And as needed, people helped each other. Loving with compassion. We, we, we love a lot of the time without the compassion. I love you. I love my church people. I love my, it's what we, my, my Sunday school class. I love this. I love that. But when there's a need, um, you know, I just had to replace a water heater. I can't, mm. something broke, you know. We vacation and did, so I can't. We love, but we lose the compassion. The church did not lose the compassion at this point. So this community loved with compassion within, but we also see, Luke tells us, they worshipped with passion. They had this loving compassion, but now we begin to see exactly where it came from. Verse 46, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They worshipped with passion. If you're in vertical church, the e-group right now, these folks got the vertical. And the reason that they could handle the horizontal appropriately, accurately, with loving compassion was because they had the vertical. They had the worship. They were daily in the temple, the scripture says. They were uh, taking part in regular formal meetings. They were going to the temple to worship because they were Jews. That's where they went to worship. But they also broke bread from house to house. There were regular informal meetings they were having. Just, you know what? The temple wasn't enough. We, let's get together and do this. Let's get together and study God's word. Let's get together and, prayer and, break for, and pray and break bread from house to house. And as they did it, they did it with joy and sincerity. An interesting combination of words. It doesn't show up like that. As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, even this word sincerity doesn't show up in the New Testament anywhere else. Just an odd conjunction for Luke. Joy and peace? Okay. Joy and love? All right. But joy and sincerity. They were happy, but something beyond happiness to be there. But they were sincere with each other. They, they encouraged one another. They were aware of each other's faults. But I think we see here that they looked for the good and not the bad. 
They worshiped with joy and sincerity. They were focused on God first and each other second. And this was a result of their personal faith relationships. So they worshipped with passion, which allowed them to love with compassion. This joy and sincerity was an intentional act of believing the best of each other. Assuming the best of each other. It's not going to be long before the early church had its problems. Those primarily are what Paul is going to cover in those letters. But we don't even have to wait for Paul. We're just going to see it as we move through Acts. But ideally, at the beginning, right now, the way it should be, they believed the best of each other. And we, as a church, need to work on that. We need to work on believing the best of each other instead of assuming the worst. It's hard to fellowship with joy when you are wondering or conniving about someone else. It's just hard. It's hard to come together and pray with people that you are talking about or assume are talking about you. It's just difficult to have church when that's happening. And we see that they came together and worshipped with joy and sincerity. And then verse 47. The kicker. The outside world noticed. They saw it. It's already been uh, hinted at in that the, the people were in awe of what was going on. They had a fear, this, this apprehension, this concern, uh, this uh, careful, respectful, nervous notice. They, they already had that, but now we see that even more than that, they were taking stock of what was going on. We see... First of the church in verse 46, which is a I mean rather verse 47, which is a continuation of the sentence in verse 46. They were praising God. What did I say? Their ultimate focus was vertical, not horizontal. They weren't, they were concerned about this. But first they were concerned personally about this. What they knew was Jesus' command. And I gotta tell you. I wrestled with uh, James McDonald and that study two weeks ago in, uh, in our e-group. James McDonald said that the ultimate that churches far too often get their soteriology I'll explain it in a minute their soteriology above their doxology. Soteriology is salvation. Doxology is worship. We get our soteriology, our focus on witnessing, our focus on evangelism, above our focus of worship. And I struggled with that for, for a week or more. I, was, I, I, I played that over and over in my head, and I chewed on it, and I argued with him. And no, no, no. We are supposed to evangelize. That is our calling as a church. And I finally... I think it was something he wrote that made it click for me. If we go back, Jesus gave two commands and one commission. Command one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Vertical. Command number two is like it, but obviously subordinate to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our commands are first to love God, and out of the overflow of our love for God, we will love each other. And then at the end of his ministry, he gave a commission. Now, this is what you are supposed to go out. This is the work of the church. This is the responsibility of the church to evangelize, to take the name of Jesus everywhere you go, to make disciples and baptize them and teach them. But what's the purpose? What's the point? Worship. Doxology. Lifting up God, praising God. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we see here. That their ultimate focus in verse 47 was praising God. And it says, Then they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Folks, unbelievers see what believers say and do. They see it. They take note of it. St. Francis of Assisi never said, preach the gospel uh, at all times and when necessary, use words. He never said it, and if he did, he shouldn't have, because that's a dumb statement. Nowhere does the Bible say, preach the gospel through actions. It says, preach the gospel through words. But it is clear that our actions affect our ability to share the gospel. That the world takes notice of what we do. Unbelievers see what believers say and do, and they take stock. They write it down. They see what we speak for and what we speak against or what we don't speak for or against. This is why if you are on Facebook right now or social media of any kind, you will see pastor after pastor, theologian after theologian, Christian after Christian, speaking against the type of hate that is being marched for in Charlottesville right now. Because as believers, just like I preached a few weeks ago when we talked about race, Baptists in the Bible, we, we, excuse me, we must speak against those things. We can't just let them lie and say, well, if we're quiet, it'll go away. We must speak up. We must speak out. We must say when somebody says, the Bible tells me I'm supposed to be racist, we tell them, you are a liar from the pits of hell. The Bible tells us that we are all made in God's image, that we love each and every one with compassion. We must stand up when things are done that are sinful and evil. We must stand against it because a lost world is watching. That is what we must do. We must speak up so that we enjoy the favor of other people. I don't care if they like me. I don't care if the lost world thinks I'm a good guy. I do care if the lost world sees Jesus in me. Regardless of what they think of him. Regardless of whether they agree with what he said regardless of whether, of whether they agree with what I say, I don't care. I, I mean, I care. I can't control that. But what I can control is, do they see Jesus in me? 
They see what we speak for or against or what we don't speak for or against. They see how we in a church complain and gossip. Frankly, because we have plenty of friends outside the church that we'll complain and gossip to about what's going on inside the church. You know, we, we don't have to tell people not to come to our church. Our attitudes and our actions tell them that outside the church. We don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to have a good opinion of our church. They already have the opinion based on what we've said while we are around them. But the flip side of that is also true. If we are talking about what God is doing in our church, and if that is all we have to talk about, great. But whether it is or not, we still need to talk about how God is doing things in our church, how God is changing hearts, how God is changing people. Then people will hear that. Let me ask you this, because some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, is God doing anything like that? If he isn't, why not? The next question needs to be, if he isn't, what am I doing to stop it? How am I part of the problem? What can I do to see the flip side of this? To see God move in this place? To see God change hearts and change lives so that the people around us see and we find favor with the people. That's why we're prayer walking tonight. That's why we do outreach ministries that may not reap any sort of immediate evangelistic results, but they gain favor with the people. People say, you know what? I don't know what they believe down there at that church. I don't understand all the, the stuff that they're preaching. As a matter of fact, I don't like some of the things they say, but I know they love me. And therefore, tomorrow when we go back, we have that opportunity to share and talk with them. They saw here in this passage, at this birth of the church, that loving compassion existed. They, they made sure that they loved their neighbors. The world saw how they treated each other, and now we've come full circle. The, the, the world saw that they loved each other with loving compassion, but I don't believe it stopped there. I believe it overflowed. I believe that their loving compassion for each other could not be contained within the four walls of the homes that they met in or the porticos at the temple where they worshipped. It bubbled over, it poured out, it spread. It was like Steve McQueen in the blob. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it began to take over not the whole city of Jerusalem, not the whole country of Israel, but the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because that love that they had for each other could not be contained and would not be restrained and spread to everyone around them. That is what we see in the church of the New Testament. As an example, the infanticide rate in Rome was astronomical. I read one quote from a letter that a man wrote to his wife. Giving birth, good luck. If it's a boy, we'll keep it. If it's a girl, expose it. The phrase expose it meant, for most of them, 
dump it in the sewer or take it to the dump and let it die. We don't need any more girls. And it was that way over and over and over. And if no one went and gathered the children, uh, they have found, uh, archaeologists found uh, below a brothel in Rome over a hundred baby skeletons, remains, in the sewer where they were just dumped after birth. The church, this body of believers, said, wait a minute, that is completely obviously against anything the Bible would teach us about the sanctity of human life. And they began to go and gather these children. They would adopt these children. They would make sewer runs, dumpster runs, and bring the babies out. Rome saw this love and this compassion. The people around them said, why would you do that? Well, because he's created in God's image. Because this is, uh, she primarily is created in God's image. This is a, a creation of his, therefore it is something he loves, something that Jesus died for. And they had that compassion. They were adopting abandoned children. This is a way that we show compassion to the world when we take care of the orphan and the widow. And speaking of taking care of orphans, now's a good time to let y'all in on something you didn't know. Uh, as you know, two of our children are adopted. Well, in the next few weeks to a couple of months, we'll add a third. It's really a fifth child, uh, but uh, we said a long time ago that if one of our children had a sibling that came up in the system in Texas, we would take that child and adopt it, and uh, one of ours has a, a half-sister out there that's in the system, and it's where we were Thursday and Friday. It's why we were in San Antonio. Uh, we were meeting the, the baby and the foster mother he's with right now. So, uh, she, I'm sorry, did I say he? Had it. Uh, so, we, the, I, I don't say this. One, I say this, so now we can talk about it freely and we don't have to keep it a secret. Um, but secondly, I don't say this because of any uh, pride in my heart. We're, we're crazy. I mean, we, we've got the twin natives, uh, and now we're going to add an infant to the twin natives, not to mention the older boys, you know. We don't have an option. I fail regularly to be obedient, but this is one of those times when, when okay, we're going to be obedient because we are called to loving with compassion. And, and our call in our lives is for, for Jace and Janie Marie and whatever siblings God might bring to us uh, from their families. And, and that's how we must respond, loving with compassion. But you have your own way that you must respond with loving compassion. And it may not be adopting children. It might be fostering children. I'll use uh, an example. There are numerous families like us. Uh, we, we have to go through a process now, particularly because we're across state lines, but we're, our, our home has been closed for uh, uh, taking in foster children, so we've got to be recertified and all that business we've got to go through. So there's going to be a time frame uh, anywhere from 60 days to six months before uh, we can bring her home. In that time frame, there needs to be 
foster parents, and, and I'm talking about Louisiana, Texas, or anywhere, that can say, I'm going to take this baby and hold this baby and love this baby and feed this baby and raise this baby until the adoptive parents can, can take it, him or her. I, I'm, it's temporary. I'm just going to do this for a time. I'm, I'm going to be attached. I'm going to love it. It's going to break my heart when I lose him or her. But in no way do I think I'm going to adopt this child. We need foster parents like that, that have the strength and the spare love to give. One way you might be able to, to minister and show with com, uh, love with compassion. And then finally, verse 47, if we do that, not just foster, adopt, but if we love with compassion, if we do what the early church was doing, God blesses. Verse 47, evangelistic growth was the natural byproduct. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Not those who were showing up and saying, wow, uh, y'all sure do take care of each other. Can I get a handout? Wow, uh, it's incredible what y'all are doing. I love playing sand volleyball. With, can, can I play sand volleyball with y'all? No, it was because of their loving with compassion. Folks were showing up and saying, what is this? Or maybe, just maybe, they were going out and telling people about Jesus. They weren't waiting for people to show up. They understood last week that loving with truth meant telling them the truth about their sinful nature, telling them the truth about the only man, God, gospel that can save them. Maybe they were doing that. But we see that when the vertical and the horizontal were correct and in correct proportion, people got saved. See, we don't love with truth just so we can share the truth. We don't love with compassion just so we can be nice to people. We do this for the sake of the gospel, so that God may be glorified, so that God may be worshipped. So loving compassion with compassion, folks, begins within. We must start here. We must be devoted to teaching, fellowship, intimacy, prayer. That is us doing that. That is us in devotion. We must ensure that the Spirit burns bright within our church. That means individually, what am I doing to quench the Spirit? What am I doing to hold back what God wants to do in this place? We must have love with compassion for each other in here. If we do not love in here, we will not love out there. It will be fake, it will be uh, manufactured, and it will be seen through. And then we see that what happens in here, this isn't Las Vegas, folks. It doesn't stay in here. What happens in here spills out there. And we see a lost world come to Christ for salvation. We see the compassion of Jesus today. We see the Son of God looking down on our sinfulness and loving us enough to tell us the truth that we had no hope. In and of ourselves, in our sinfulness. But we see him uh, coming with compassion, loving with compassion and saying, I am your hope. You cannot defeat your sin, but I can. Dying on the cross for our sins and saying, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but my, by me. We see the compassion of Jesus through his offer of salvation. Will you accept that salvation today? Will you see his compassion for you, his love for you, and the truth of your sinfulness? Will you admit that you're a sinner? And believe and repent of your sins and turn from them and say, I understand that I can do nothing about my sin in and of myself. Will you believe today that Jesus is your salvation and your only salvation? You cannot save yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot overcome the sin problem. You have a deadly problem and it will send you to hell. But Jesus in his compassion has said, I will save you if you will believe. And will you give your life to him and follow him? Will you trust him? Will you commit yourself to him and say, Lord, here am I. Take me. I'm yours and I'm not my own. What will you do today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of loving compassion that your son showed us on the cross. That we can know salvation. But Lord, thank you that you have called us to show that same compassion and love to others. And that compassion and love, or loving with compassion, does not reject the truth, does not obfuscate the truth, but God is clear about the truth, but clear about the hope as well, the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we share that love with compassion. Lord, may we be a light to this place. May it begin here in these walls as we devote ourselves to you and to each other in that order. And then see what you will do as we take that love out to our neighborhoods, the uttermost, our cities and our homes. God, work in this place today. Draw hearts to you, and if there's one here who doesn't know your son as Savior, may that person accept that salvation today and believe and join the church with the 3,000 that started it. May they become one of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your decision today? How is God speaking to you? How do you need to respond? Do you need to accept Christ? Have you accepted Christ, but you need to be baptized and follow in that obedience? Do you need to uh, lead a life of holiness? Is there a self-correction you need to make? And it's not a self-correction, it's a God correction. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe you have other opportunities, other issues you need to get right with God. Let's stand, let's sing. The altar is open for you. I'll pray with you. But during this time, let's do business with God.